Take your copy of God's Word and open it with me this morning to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. And we're going to read in a moment the first four verses. 1 John chapter 1 verse 4. Voltaire was a very well-known philosopher and an atheist. He once said that if he saw a miracle taking place right before his very eyes and the eyes of 1,000 of his countrymen, he would rather deny his own eyes and the eyes of a 1,000 countrymen rather than admit that a miracle had taken place place. Well, there are so many people in the world today who just outright refuse to believe in miracles no matter what, and so it is no wonder why there are so many who have a problem with Christmas, because we understand that Christmas is all about a miracle. Maybe this is why Christmas means so much for those Men and women who desperately need a miracle. Those who are just at the end of their ropes. Those who are down and out. Maybe that's some of you here today. You desperately need a miracle in your life. Or you know someone who desperately needs to experience a miracle as well. I believe that God is still a miracle-working God. And yet the more I read the Word of God, the more convinced I am that the greatest of all of the miracles we see in Scripture is not the miracle of creation, as incredible a miracle as that is. It's not the miracle of the flood, as incredible a miracle as that is. I believe that the greatest miracle is the miracle that took place that first Christmas when God came down, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I say this not just because of the virgin birth. That is a miracle in itself. I say this because as we will see this morning, there is indeed much more. What is it about the birth of Jesus that makes it such a miracle? We're going to look at the prologue of that little book towards the end of the New Testament, the book of 1 John. He mentions several things about the birth of Christ which make it such a miracle. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. John the Apostle was not present when Jesus was born, but out of the Apostles, he is the one who was the closest to our Lord. 
And he mentions to us four things about Jesus' birth, things which he no doubt learned from Christ himself that make his birth such a miracle. What is it about his birth that makes it a miracle? And it's a miracle because of what it brought together. It's a miracle because of what it brought together. His birth brought together divinity and humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. Notice again that statement at the beginning of verse 1. That which was from the beginning. Say those three words with me. From the beginning. I want you to notice what John is doing. This is the same John who wrote the gospel of John. And do you remember how he began that book? In John 1.1, he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later on in verse 14, he said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so the Word refers to Jesus. In the beginning, he said, or from the beginning in 1 John 1, 1, was the, was the Word. Of course, John is doing something very intentional here. This is meant to be a reflection of the very first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1, 1, which says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so you take these three verses, you put them together, in the beginning, from the beginning, God was the Word, was Jesus Christ. By the way, I don't believe you'll find three more important words in all of the Bible than these words, in the beginning. It's as if you can draw a blank after those three words, and how you fill in that blank will completely shape how you do life. If you say, for example, in the beginning there was a big bang, nothing more, that's it, that will shape your worldview. That will determine how you view morality. That'll determine how you view what is right, what is wrong, what is truth, what is error. That will determine for you what your meaning, what your purpose is in life. All of that goes back to what follows those words in the beginning. If on the other hand you say, as John does, in the beginning God, in the beginning was Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, that will shape everything as well, only in a different way. John says, speaking of Jesus, he was from the beginning. Meaning if you could go back in, as far in time as the human mind could possibly imagine, what would you find? There you would find Jesus, who existed in eternity past as God and will exist for eternity future as God. One of the first and one of the main doctrines that gets attacked by false teachers is always the deity of Christ. Well, this is not anything new. In the fourth century, there was this pastor named Arius who began to teach some false things. He began to teach 
that Jesus was not really God. He began to teach that Jesus was a created being. And unfortunately, Arius was successful in persuading a lot of people. And so there was this great big giant debate that took place in the church. Well, one of the men who stood up to Arius and debated against him was a man by the name of Nicholas. Nicholas even argued face-to-face publicly with Arius, uh, arguing for the divinity of Christ. Nicholas debated Arius and said, no, that's not what the Bible says. Nicholas turned to John 1.1 and 1 John 1.1, and Nicholas said to him, Jesus was in the beginning. Jesus was from the beginning. Years later, somebody came along and decided to start referring to him as Saint Nicholas, And of course, we understand that every born-again child of God is a saint in the eyes of God. I tell you this so that you'll know that the real Saint Nicholas was not an overweight guy in a red suit who had a reindeer and a sleigh who delivered presents to children. The real Nicholas was a man who was passionate about doctrinal purity, who was passionate about the gospel, and who preached the deity of Christ. He believed what John was saying here in verse 1, that Jesus was from the beginning. Notice what he says next in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled. Now, on the one hand, John says that Jesus was from the beginning, from the beginning of time itself. In other words, he's eternal. But then on the other hand, that same Jesus who was from the beginning, John says that we have seen him, we've heard him. He said some of us have been blessed to be able to actually touch him with our hands. You see, from the beginning refers to the deity of Jesus But when John says, we heard him, we've seen him, we've looked upon him, we've touched him, he is referring to the humanity of Jesus. And he is saying, hey, I was there. I was there when he preached. I was there when he performed miracles. I was there when he died on the cross. My hands touched the nail scars and his hands and his feet. My own eyes saw him ascend into heaven. You see, not only was Jesus fully God, but John in that very first verse of this letter wants us to also know that he was fully man, and it is just as much heresy to deny one as it is to deny the other. You know, in John's day, he had his hands full with a different kind of false teaching that was going around an early form of what was called Gnosticism. And this belief said that all matter is evil and everything spiritual is good. In other words, all matter, everything that's physical, anything that you can actually see or touch, they believed it was automatically evil and only that which was spiritual is good. And so these false teachers took that idea and said, well, since Jesus uh, uh, could not be evil, then that means 
he could not have been literally human flesh. He just looked like human flesh. He couldn't have really been a man. He just looked like a man. It just appeared that he had a human body. Well, these days, false teachers reject the divinity of Christ, but in John's day, these false teachers were rejecting the humanity of Christ. So when John says in verse 1, we've seen him, we've heard him, we've looked upon him, we have touched him, he was emphasizing, it's like he's using every word that he has available to drive home this point and say, yes, he was real. He was really human, and he had a real body. He didn't just appear to be real, and it wasn't a hallucination. Part of the miracle of Christmas is that Jesus brought these two together in himself, that he was both deity and humanity, not one or the other, not half of one and half of the other, but that he was fully man and fully God, He had to be fully man so that he could die on the cross for you and for me and take our place. He had to be fully God to satisfy the requirements of a holy God when he made that sacrifice and he paid that price for us. And so John begins by stressing that Jesus was both and that he brought the two together. Sometimes I think we emphasize so much the deity of Christ that we fail to remember, and we fail to emphasize just how human he was. I think sometimes we even sanitize the Christmas story a little bit. I think we forget that Jesus was so human that he had diaper rash, and he burped, and he sneezed, he cried. We sing Silent Night. We sing Away in a Manger. We say no crying he made. Well, maybe he had colic. He was so human. I love the way Max Lucado described this. He wrote a book called God Came Near, and he said it this way. He said, heaven opened herself and placed her most precious one in a human womb. The omnipotent, in one instance, made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. The one who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. That's how human Jesus was. And yes, it was a miracle that he who was from the beginning would come down from heaven to earth, that mankind could actually see him, hear him, look upon him, and touch him, that we might know him as Emmanuel, God with us. That's what makes his birth a miracle. It's also a miracle because of how it revealed God. Because of how it revealed God. Again, in verse 1, concerning the word of life. Verse 2, the life was manifested, 
And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Again, Jesus is referred to as the Word of life that was manifested to us, just as John 1.1 refers to Jesus as the Word. Now, why is it that John liked referring to Jesus as the Word so often in his gospel, in this letter? Well, Jesus as the Word emphasizes his role in creation. God spoke and created the universe by the power of his Word. But I do believe that there's another reason John has in mind here Jesus is called the word of life in part because words are normally how we communicate with others. We use words to express ourselves. We use words to convey to others our concerns, our joys, our fears, our hopes, our goals, our dreams. We use words to tell others who we are. Our words reveal us. John refers to Jesus as the Word because He is God's communication to us. He is God's revelation of Himself. And that's why John says twice in this one verse that Jesus was manifested. He was revealed. That means to pull back the cover. That means to reveal something that we would not know otherwise, to reveal something that we could not know otherwise. And that's what happened at Christmas. The God who was invisible became visible. The voice that spoke the world into existence became a baby's cry. The God who was high and lifted up such that the prophet Isaiah fell on his face as dead at just the sight of a glimpse of his glory. He became Emmanuel, God with us. There are so many things about God that we know just from reading the scriptures and from reading the Old Testament, reading all those stories and how God interacted with Israel and how God spoke through the prophets. But you know, there's something about God that we cannot learn by reading these things. For example, what would God do if he were to walk among us? What would he be like if he were to walk among us? What would he say if he were to walk among us? How would he act towards others if he were to walk among us? That's another kind of knowledge that's another level of knowledge altogether. And that's why everything we know about God intimately, everything we know about God personally, we know because of Jesus Christ. We know what forgiveness looks like because we see Jesus forgiving the woman caught in adultery. We know what God's anger looks like. We see Jesus cleansing the temple. We see what God's power looks like when we see Jesus walking on the water. We see what God's authority looks like when Jesus cast out demons. We know what God's tenderness looks like, what God's compassion looks like when we see Jesus weeping outside of the grave of his friend Lazarus. And we know what God's love looks like 
because we can see it in Jesus dying on the cross for us. And in each of these ways, we know what we know about God by opening up the Gospels and looking at Jesus. This is what makes his birth such a miracle because of how his birth revealed God to us so that we could know him in a way that we could never know him otherwise. Yes, it is a miracle. It's also a miracle because of the fellowship it made possible. Notice in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. At Christmas, Jesus became a part of the family of the human race so that one day we could be a part of God's family. And notice what John says here. He said, we declare this to you so that you might have fellowship with us. What does John mean by fellowship? Well, what kind of fellowship is he talking about? Well, he immediately adds, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. This fellowship that John is talking about here, it's much deeper than what we often refer to as fellowship. It's bigger and deeper than a potluck luncheon. It's bigger and deeper than just friendship. In fact, what John is referring to here is even deeper than the fellowship that we have with one another. He's talking about the fellowship that together we have with God. He says we have fellowship with God, and you can have fellowship with God along with us. You may or may not know this word for fellowship in the original language. It is very intense. It is very powerful. It's that word koinonia. And that word literally means to have in common. It refers to that connection that you have with somebody when you have a whole bunch of stuff in common with them. Maybe you're meeting them for the very first time. Some of you heard I was in Mexico City a few months ago, was walking to the pharmacy, and I wasn't really lost, but I was lost. A hundred Baptist churches in a town of 28 million people. And the guy that I randomly walked up to to ask for directions was the pastor of one of those 100 Baptist churches. And when I met this man for the very first time, and we were the same age, and we had families that were similar, and we had the same beliefs, and we both pastored Baptist churches and busy doing missions, we had all this in common. And all of a sudden, even though we had just met for the very first time, there was this connection that was already there. Well, guess what? Because Jesus came from heaven to earth, because he was born, because he was both God and man, God now has something in common with us, and we have something now in common with him that we would not have had otherwise. There's this koinonia, there's this fellowship that is now possible. And we can not just know him and know things about him, but we can now know him intimately. We can know him personally. And yes, this is a miracle. Many of you are familiar with the, the great Methodist John and Charles Wesley, great preachers of the gospel, great hymn writers as well. We still sing a lot of the hymns that they wrote. Well, it turns out Charles Wesley 
like we do here at First Baptist Church, he ministered in the prisons. And there was one time in his life where he was ministering to a particular group of men who had all committed capital crimes and were all sentenced to die. In this particular case, these men were all sentenced to be hanged on the same gallows on the same day at the same time. And so Charles Wesley made a very interesting request. He asked for permission to minister to those men in a very special way. He asked for permission to actually live with those men who had been condemned to die. He said, I want to live where they live and the conditions they live in. He said, I want to eat the food that they eat. I want to sleep in the same rooms that they sleep in. I want to be locked up behind the same bars. And amazingly, they granted his request. And so for these men on death row, for the final few weeks of their lives, Charles Wesley literally moved into the prison with them. And he did this because he knew that by coming to them and living with them, he could share the love of Christ with them in a more powerful way. He could communicate the gospel to them in a more direct way, pleading with them to be saved. And many of them were, in fact, saved during those days. He lived with them, and he taught them God's word. He taught them some of those great songs of the faith that he had written. In fact, on the day in which those men were put to death, he literally walked with them, singing right up to the gallows on which they were hanged. I tell you this because we were on our own spiritual death row. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. But when Jesus came, it was not like Charles Wesley simply to encourage sinners leading up to their execution. Jesus came to this prison called earth in order to actually take our place on the gallows, so to speak. And having become one of us, he was qualified to do that and to take our punishment when he died upon the cross. This, too, is a miracle because sinful man has little in common with a holy God. But Jesus came and he became one of us so that we could have and experience that koinonia, that something in common with God, that fellowship and that friendship and that love with God. And that's a miracle. But there's one more thing about his birth that I want you to notice in this passage that makes the birth of Jesus Christ a miracle that we should celebrate every single day of the year. It's a miracle because of the joy it makes complete. And notice what John says. I love this in verse 4. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. John said the reason why we are telling you these things about the Jesus who was from the beginning, but we've seen him and looked upon him and touched him, 
The reason why we are telling you how he revealed God to us and makes it possible for us to have fellowship with him, we are telling you all of these things about the coming of Jesus and the birth of Jesus for this reason, for this purpose, so that your joy may be full. There may be a little note in your Bible, some manuscripts say, so our joy may be full. So that's what some translations will say. Other manuscripts, other translations say, so that your joy may be full. And of course, some people just want to debate whether or not it's our joy or your joy that is full. I think they're missing the point. When Jesus is in the picture, guess what? Everybody's joy is made full. The angel said to the shepherds, I bring you good tidings of great joy that will be for all people. The Bible says they found him and they rejoiced. The Bible says the wise men rejoiced when they saw the star. Simeon in the temple rejoiced when he saw Jesus. Anna rejoiced when she saw him. Over and over again, we keep coming back to that word when we read through the Christmas story that those who saw him and those who met this baby Jesus, when they did, their response over and over again was joy. And folks, it's still true today. I still remember after I was saved, the oddness of having this joy. I'd never experienced joy in my life. I knew something wonderful had happened in my heart, something that was greater than anything that I had ever experienced before, something that I could not explain. I remember saying to myself, not long after I became a Christian, how wonderful and how weird is the joy of the Lord. It was both weird and wonderful all at the same time. I was so overcome with the joy of the Lord that, as you know, years later, when I started to pray for a wife, I prayed that she would have the joy of the Lord. God knows I'm not very smart, so he made sure that her name was Joy, just so I didn't miss the sign. But this experience of joy that I had when I came to know Christ, this came to define my life. And I tell you this so you'll know, joy is not something that we produce. It is the byproduct of that koinonia, that fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said in John 15. He said, I tell you these things so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy would be Oh, let that sink in. Jesus said, this joy that I have inside of me is going to be inside of you. That is a miracle. It's a miracle that God would take a sinner like me or a sinner like you and not just say, I'm going to forgive you. Not just say, I'm going to restore you. Not just say, I'm going to take you to heaven. But he takes us and he says to us, I'm going to give you everlasting joy. Peter called it inexpressible and glorious joy. I like that. This is what the birth of Jesus makes possible to 
us. And I understand it's hard for some people to feel joyful this time of the year. I know what it's like to experience loss at Christmas. I know what it's like that first Christmas after a loved one has departed. Maybe you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you've got a crisis of faith. Maybe you're hurting. But I tell you, even then, because of the baby that was born in Bethlehem's manger, yes, there is joy for anyone who's willing to receive him. Would you join me as we pray? Our Lord and our God, we so thank you that he who was from the beginning came from heaven to earth, came in such a way that man could see him, hear him, hold him, touch him, that he came in real human flesh, fully God and fully man, so that one day he could be our mediator between God, a holy God, and sinful man through his death upon the cross and through his resurrection. We thank you again that Jesus was indeed born in the shadow of the cross. He was born to die so that through him we could know you and not just know things about you, but know you personally and have that koinonia, that fellowship with you and as, as a result with one another as well. And we thank you that Jesus came and he did all of these things, as your word says, so that our joy may be full. God, it is my prayer for every person in this room and who's listening online as well this morning that they would experience that fullness of joy that John talked about when he spoke of Jesus' birth. That through knowing him, in spite of our circumstances, in spite of what trials we might be going through, in spite of whatever loss we might have suffered recently or in the past year, that in spite of all of that, we would put on display this joy of the Lord for all to see. And we thank you for making that possible through Jesus Christ. God, I pray for those, for any here today, who have never received this precious gift who've never called upon the name of Jesus as Lord, that this would be their day of salvation, that day of sweet surrender when they turn away from sin and from self and call upon Jesus, surrendering to him as Lord of their lives. And Father, if that's, the, if that's one person, one man, woman, boy, or girl, listening to this message who needs to take that step, oh, how I pray that they would do so now. Help all of us, Lord, to take what we've heard and apply it, and not just during Christmas season, but every single day of the year. And we pray this all in Jesus' name.